You're listening to the Vulnerability Academy podcast from UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust, exploring essential knowledge and strategic practice. Good morning. Uh, Welcome to this special webinar and podcast on the new Financial Conduct Authority paper on the fair treatment of vulnerable customers. Now, published on July 23rd, this came out just in time to slip into people's summer holiday packing. Now, admittedly, most people I did this to probably weren't happy to discover GC19-3 nestled in the suitcase where the phone charger used to be. But what other poolside reading is set in the world of financial services policy, employs a slightly unusual plot structure, and requires the reader to write in with the ending? So probably like yourselves and the guests joining me today in our studio at the Money Vice Trust, we have now digested and redigested the 69 pages of the FCA's paper, thought about how the words on these pages might realistically change frontline practice, and have started coming to a few conclusions about where this new FCA guidance for consultation takes us. So what's our verdict? Well, let's find out. Joining us today are three people who I'm sure are now very familiar with the intricacies and potential consequences of the paper. Uh, Suzanne Wood, Head of Customer Outcomes at Newcastle Building Society and a graduate of the UK Finance and Money Advice Trust Vulnerability Academy. Good morning, Suzanne. Good morning. Tim Hawley, Head of Vulnerability at Capital One, who is also a graduate of the Vulnerability Academy. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Chris. And Fiona Turner, not yet a graduate of the Vulnerability Academy, but we'll get you there one day. Um, Head of Vulnerability, Financial Inclusion, Capability and Vulnerability at UK Finance and formerly Head of Consumer Affairs at the Royal Bank of Scotland. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. And just as importantly, our discussion is also being recorded in front of a live studio audience. I've always wanted to say that. So hello to you all. However, unlike other shows recorded with a live studio audience, and I'm thinking here of uh, Mrs. Brown Boys, uh, please feel free to interrupt proceedings with a question, an observation, or outright heckling. And you can do this by hitting the orange arrow on your screen and typing your message, your missive, or your question into the text box that will appear. The world and our discussion will be a much better place for your interjection, so please do that. Um, also, do let us know if you have any problems with the sound quality, and we'll do our best with that, or just speak up. So we'll, we'll carry on. Okay, let's get to the uh, first question. So let's start with a question for our panel, and then we'll have one for the, the audience out there. So um, many people feel that firms have come a long way since the FCA's occasional paper on vulnerability back in 2015 and that arguably much has been achieved and changed. So therefore, panellists, in your opinion, uh, what guidance do firms need on vulnerability right now and have the FCA actually given this to them? So let's start with you, Suzanne. Thank you, Chris. Um, For me, the the guidance is a good base start. Um, It's great to hear that this isn't the end piece from the FCA. For me, I think I would really like some really clear examples. Um, I think the guidance at the moment is intentionally quite high level. Um, Some of the examples are really quite specific um, into scenarios that you may not be able to to apply wider into your your organisations. For me, I would really like something along the lines of if you have terms and conditions where we know that a customer who may be um, less able to digest what that information is is trying to tell them, I would really like to see an example of being able to put it into in a graph, an in- infographic, um, and really show f- what the FCA would s- like to see from firms to be able to discharge all the relevant information required under the handbook, um, but equally how we can then ensure that all customers have that fair treatment and, and clarity over the products that they're then accessing from ourselves. Okay. So clarity 
yes. is the thing there. So it's not so much the right issues, it's the clarity with which they're being expressed. Absolutely, yes. Okay, okay. Tim, what, 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 do you, what do you make of the, uh, of the guidance? So for me, I think there's a few things. So I'd be asking a question, you know, what's sufficient, what's expected, what's acceptable, what's unexpe- um, unacceptable. Um, I always think of it as like you're trying to find that Goldilocks moment, you know, not too much too little you're looking for the thing that's just right right Um, and so for me the guidance is probably uh, way more clear than we've ever had before so I think there is a lot more clarity in there I think the question mark is could it be clearer absolutely it could be clearer but I think the guidance exists to help us think about what additional questions do we need to answer and if that helps us all to then focus on finding out those answers then for me I think the guidance has done its job. Okay, so it's not not so much practical guidance then, in, in your opinion, but it's um, encouraging you to think about certain things. So it's guidance to further questions as opposed to guidance on what to do now. Yeah, I think look, if we all think that the FCA has got all the answers, it's just that they're not telling us, then I think we're all very misguided. I think what they're doing is that as part of the journey that we're all on, they're kind of showing more about where their thinking is out. They're showing more about what is happening uh, good in the industry and also areas that we can learn from. And so I see the guidance as part of that continual journey rather than seeing it as the destination. So do you think the FCA are, are catching up with where many firms are as opposed to maybe, you I mean, you talked about it laying out further questions, yeah. but you seem to always be saying it's a summary of where firms are at the moment. Yeah, so I think if you read through the guidance, then it starts to try and pull together those threads of things that they're seeing in the industry that they think is to be encouraged and items in the industry that they are seeing which causes them concern. And so I think it is part of that ongoing conversation and them laying out there some of the things that they've seen over the course of the period since we had occasional paper eight. Okay, Fiona, you you got a firm hat in the past with RBS, and you got a, a UK finance hat. What, what's your what's your take on the guidance? So, from from an industry perspective, I do think it provides an element of clarity and also a practical framework through a lens that we can look at vulnerability. I think it's a helpful thing to have at this point in time because um, in the past we haven't had the regulator provide us with that clarity and so as a result we've had an awful lot of um, consumer groups specialist charities have tried to support the industry by providing that guidance in various different benchmarks Um, you know you've got Alzheimer's dementia friends you've got the MAL guidelines there's there's a whole plethora of them and I think the FCA's framework will provide a one one-stop shop for the banks to go to the kind of reference book that it should turn to and I would hope that going forward um, we should be able to look at all those different benchmarks and make sure that they're incorporated into the FCA guidance and if there are not if there's any gaps then we should look to evolve that similarly if there was a an organization felt that it needed to have some guidance I'd encourage them to see how they could influence the evolution of the FCA's guidance as it is now. So sort of at strategic level, I think it's a good thing. Um, We need to be quite clear and have a common understanding of what the guidance means in practice Um, because a worry that I have both from an industry and a firm perspective is different people will interpret the guidance in a different way and that therefore brings with it an element of reputational risk if you're not seen not to be meeting the standard of a particular organisation. So I think greater clarity would be very helpful. Mm. 
We will line up. Um, I'm going to refer to Jason, the unseen uh, pollster in the room, who's going to move us on to the, uh, the, the poll uh, for you to have a look at on the right issues. But while, while that loads up, um, the FCA say in the guidance, um, uh, we're considering making this a single source for everything across the handbook that relates to vulnerability. And I was both um, pleased by that prospect and also a bit worried about what a task that would represent for the FCA, given kind of the, the number of references across the handbook and also some of the streams of work that the FCA are currently working on. Do you think that's feasible? Because Fiona, you seem to be saying there, you know, this should be a single source for everyone to turn to, as opposed to perhaps having a more fragmented patchwork of advice being out there. So I'm saying that we it, it will be the single source that people would go to first. I'm not saying that that should be a rule book. Um, I'm saying that self-regulation is welcomed by the industry and it and it provides a benchmark, but it shouldn't be rule book because that then prevents, in my view, um, further innovation. It provides, um, the, the guidance provides flexibility and approach and provides further avenues for firms to think more creatively, innovatively, and as a result of that, you'll get a continued evolution. So I think it being guidance is the right way, but what I want it to be is the umbrella guidance from which all of the other guidance that we see externally sits on top of. Okay, one ring to rule them all. It's a, now, you, you see a poll has appeared on, on the screen there, and we'll let you just uh, finish off your, your voting there. 53% of you have voted. You passed the technology test. Let's see if we can get the other 46% uh, of you now over the line. But Tim and Suzanne, um, we've started talking there or getting into the notion of kind of the fact that this guidance is, I mean, they say very, it's probably the most carefully worded paragraph in, in the piece, you know, non-mandatory, non-binding, uh, not uh, not having to be followed. They talk a lot about outcomes. What, what's your perspective on this? Does the industry, can the industry call for more clarity, but at the same time kind of reject actually having kind of clear rules? So I think the guidance is clear in the direction that the FCA want to take, right? And they have a remit which is to ensure that consumers are protected. And they have highlighted that vulnerable customers are the ones that need special attention. And so I think sometimes the conversation about like how is this going to be enforced or how is that going to fit in um, can become a bit of a mute point because really arguing then against, well, is this the direction we want to go in or not? And I think that ship has sailed. Um, I think what they are clear on is, well, how is that going to get integrated? And what they're saying is instead of loading new stuff, actually it's all part and parcel of the enforcement framework that they already have. Right? Vulnerability, and one of the things that's clear to me in this is deeply embedded, right? clear across all touch points in organization. And therefore, if you start trying to just bolt additional factors on for vulnerability, I think you start to set a tone as though that's a bolt on at the end. And so I welcome having it integrated into the existing um, assessment, enforcement, whatever word you want to use, because I think that layers on that same message of how do you integrate it into the work that you're already doing rather than just push something in at the end. I agree. I, I really don't think that it should be a prescriptive rule in a handbook. You know, 
the the guidance itself, I don't see guidance any differently or treated any differently to how I would treat a rule coming in. Um, it, it absolutely is the view of the FCA and how they would expect firms to be acting. And I think it's very clear with the um, you know reference back to the the high level principles that this is intrinsically linked with principles and how you should be going about your business every single day. So I think it would be a very brave firm to decide to just ignore it because it's just a bit of guidance. Okay, so it's that tightrope between um, being clear uh, but not being prescriptive, mm. providing guidance, not providing <laughs> rules. It's interesting, entirely the opposite to what consumer groups say. So kind of, <laughs> it's an interesting so We've got the results here of the, of, of, of the poll. Um, so the FCA paper addresses the right issues. 67% um, of you um, agree. 29% uh, neither agree nor disagree, and only 3% fall into the disagree category. So the FCA, I'm sure they're tuning in from Endeavour Square in Stratford, uh, probably very happy with that. Um, so it's clearly that summary point of the guidance is, is coming through loud and clear. So let, let's let's move on to the, uh, the second poll. So these are the issues. So has the FCA paper uh, achieved the right degree of clarity on what firms should do? So... While you're voting, we'll just uh, unpack that a little bit. I've heard some people say that, okay, the FCA, we were expecting a, a roadmap. Um, what I've got is a list of places to visit, tea shops to drop in on, um, you know, monuments to have a look at, but no directions on how to actually get there. Do you think that's unfair criticism? They've given some, uh, some outcomes and objectives, but haven't really shown firms what they need to do. So, like, to extend your analogy, uh, it isn't a detailed roadmap. I think what it is is... It's a map that shows us some hazards on the way which we need to avoid. And I think it shows us destinations which they want us to visit. I think it is a guide rather than a set of rules to be followed, right? And that's uh, a clue in the title. And so I think absolutely it gives us that view of be careful of these areas, but here are things that as a firm you need to consider. So I think that is laid out very clearly in the documentation. Fiona, mm. Suzanne? Um, I think for me, uh, you know, when we've been waiting for the guidance, it's very much been on the basis that we were going to be getting some minimum standards. Um, and I think that was an expectation that I was, you know, anticipating from the guidance document. And it fell slightly short of that, I believe. Um, and I think in order to get consistency across treatment, across all different firms and sectors, you need to have some kind of benchmark of minimum standards in there. Yes, the good and poor practice is very useful. Um, however, as previously explained, a lot of that is in some really unique individual circumstances. Um, so some you know, clear minimum standards for me is something that I think would help provide a lot more clarity. Mm. Fiona? Well, I agree on the minimum standards point. I think they don't necessarily have to be in the guidance because I think as an industry and as sectors, we can work on that together. We can share the best practice. We can share the challenges, the roadblocks, um, the hazards, as you like, um, that we've experienced and what we've done to try and uh, solve those resolve those so that we can provide better outcomes for customers so i think there is a lot of work to be done in this next phase for us as individual firms and as an industry to collectively work with the fca to try and broaden out exactly from their guidance let's have more examples they've provided some examples in the document and they're helpful um, but some would say that they're at the extreme of good 
um, and the extreme of bad, and there's a whole shade of grey in between. So if we could get further evidence and input from the FCA around the different things that they're seeing and where they fit on the scale of good or bad, then we can start to benchmark um, and cal calibrate what we're currently doing and what more we need to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you expect the, the, the guide, this is guidance for consultation, so there'll be guidance and a final response. Do you expect the guidance to differ wildly from what we have at the moment? Do you think we've got the core and this is what the, the end point will look like? Or do you think we might be able to get some of those minimum standards out there? Because some might argue that they're in there, they're just kind of buried. Mm. I think we've got the core. I think it will look quite similar to, to how it is currently. Um, but it's really, you know, refreshing to hear the FCA really ask for that information and help from um, from firms and organisations to, to really help shape and influence the guidance. So, um, you know, hopefully it's only going to be as good as the input that we all put in back to the guidance. Um, so, you know, I would expect it to still have the core principles, but maybe a bit fleshed out more with some some more examples um, that we that we've been doing in the industry already and tim it's it's non it's non-binding binding it's non-mandatory uh, there's no there's no rules uh, except where there are rules within the handbook that relate to the aspects within it um will we just see the um a uh, group of firms a cohort of firms always do the right thing stepping up to apply the guidance while those who don't actually step away from it where's the supervisory and the enforcement element going to come in yeah so i think you're going to naturally see there are going to be some people first to the party you're going to have organizations such as ourselves who want to ensure we're doing the right thing for consumers and you know our driver isn't just the fca our driver is because we want to do the right thing um, i think it's going to take those organizations to lead a bit from the front and then provide some examples to others around what good can look like um, you're always going to have a dispersion of people at the front and some people at the back that need chivying up. Um, I think the question denotes the, is there something at the back that pushes those forward a bit more? Um, I think the FCA are clear, which is, whereas it's not saying here are a set of things that we will do, it will be enforceable within the rules that they've got. So under treating customers fairly, which has been around for a long time. They're just saying there is a different type of customer, which is a vulnerable customer, and they will come with specific needs. I would expect them to assess firms' practices against those existing principles. And we're getting more information about, actually, as a vulnerable customer, here's some specific things that they need, which are unique to maybe ways that you've considered it before. So Fiona, you were nodding vigorously while Tim was speaking and shaking your head vigorously while I was speaking, so. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um... I think there's a very low risk that firms won't take this seriously. Um, Tim's already said that, you know, all of the guidance is predicated on the principles and we are bound by the principles. So I, I cannot see any firm having this on their desk and thinking that they, they're not bound by it. I just it. won't think about the supervisory aspect, you know, and, how and it's going to be enforced, because we have lots of guidance, lots of rules, lots of laws in society. Sure. I mean, even the Prime Minister is thinking about that at the moment so it's kind of so the, there is a job for the FCA to do and they recognize that at some recent meetings that I attended that they need to ensure that their supervisors fully understand the guidance and have a consistent approach to interpreting the guidance and then dealing with firms about how you know how does what is happening on the ground match up to that interpretation of the guidance? So that's a key thing for the FCA to do. 
And then what, you know, we as firms and and as the industry need to do is work with the FCA as they're having those meetings to understand, you know, what is their view on current practice? Where can it improve? Mm. And then to share that so that we can all learn and evolve quickly rather than wait for six months for a report to come out that then is either glowing or not. Um, You know, we want to have drip-fed iterative feedback so that we can continuously evolve and improve our practice because at the end of the day the aspiration should be that we treat all customers fairly be they vulnerable or not Mm. Um, that would be the utopia end goal it's just that now we're having to um, think about how we treat vulnerable customers specifically because this is something that we need to put attention to okay and we'll come back to this um inclusive approach when we talk about design so so looking at at the poll um it's it's split again um 40 percent uh of of you think that the um, the right degree of clarity hasn't hasn't been achieved 42 include those who strongly disagree um 22 percent are broadly kind of happy um with uh the clarity there and a third neither agreeing on dis- disagreeing maybe they're waiting to the end of the podcast we should run this again just to see if there's uh, any improvement for your input so let's let, let's move on now the fca paper covers a lot of ground there's a lot in there it's uh 69 pages in total uh there's a section on understanding needs staff skills and capability design considerations customer services communications data it goes on um so um, Fiona, was there anything that caught your eye on first reading? Just very briefly, was there anything that stood out for you? You thought, oh, okay, wasn't expecting that, or okay, I'm, I'm pleasantly pleased that's in there. I, I think the key thing, and we've touched on it already, is the introduction of the lens of potential versus actual vulnerability. Okay, are you going to be brave here and explain to us the <laughs> No, I'm not going to be that brave. <laughs> um, so the, the FCA have recognised that vulnerability is dynamic, They've also recognised that putting that dynamic lens on it, 50% of consumers show characteristics of having potential vulnerability. So they felt that they couldn't um, ignore that in the guidance, that it should be captured in some way. I think the challenge for firms is how you, whilst they understand the need and that, that vulnerability is not always permanent and it can be temporary, and you could argue it could be permanently temporary or it could be transiently temporary. Um, you, you've got a range of, you know, of, from actual to potential captures an awful lot of people. So mm. just taking myself, I was uh, put at risk recently and made redundant. Technically, I was a vulnerable customer or I could have been. Um, and it's at that point, you know, did I inform my bank? No, I didn't. Um, should I have done? I didn't feel so, but should the bank have known about my potential vulnerability? So I think the the aspiration is right, but it's how do you operationalise mm. that? That's the biggest challenge. And what are the expectations on firms to operationalise that? How how does that look like in practice? And I think that's the biggest thing so that jumped let's, out let's for me. So I'm hearing a lot from firms at the moment that um, they'd achieved, uh, the FCA had achieved clarity with the definition we had a proposal that the definition of vulnerability changed uh, a year or so ago, but they stuck with the original. But now we have this actual and potential vulnerability, and it's a bit of a, a minefield in terms of actually thinking. It works on paper, but maybe it doesn't work in practice. I mean, what, what's your take? Is this as helpful or is it a bit of a red herring? So um, I think the paper 
was slightly unhelpful in just throwing the term potential vulnerability out there because where you can land is everyone is potentially vulnerable. Um, when I think about it, I make a clear distinction. It's very similar to risk management for me. So you have risk and issue management. An actual vulnerability is like issue management. There is a thing there which you need to deal with, right? You need to understand the customer situation. Here is someone in distress, etc., And that is the same as we think about issue management. Potential vulnerability, I think about similar to or synonymous with risk management. And you can't manage all risks. Therefore, you have to prioritize. And the way that you do that is through impact, likelihood, and control effectiveness. And I think that then, if you put that lens over the top, which says, well, actually, which ones of your vulnerable customers are at highest risk of impact, i.e. their vulnerability is going to cause great harm? Which ones of your customers have a high likelihood of that potential vulnerability becoming an actual vulnerability? And which ones of those from a control effectiveness do you have the least either mitigation or response for? If you think about it in that risk management lens and you'll look at potential vulnerability being the ones with high impact, high likelihood with low ability to do something about, you'll focus on that. And then what that starts to do is navigate your thought away from potential being everyone. Mm. Now I do, if I think about it in that lens, I find that helpful. I don't know if others do. But I do agree that the paper doesn't provide that distinction. And so a lot of people are asking the question of, do they mean everyone? Which I don't think they do. And I think they've um, been clear on that in some conversations. But then you go, well, where do you draw the line? Mm. If you think about it in that risk management, then you can allow a firm to draw the line, but you at least got the explanation of why I drew the line there. So we know that some groups are at higher risk or particular forms of detriment. Um, but we never assume that individuals that might fall within those groups are experiencing that detriment. We look to engage with them to find out more about their circumstance. So, Suzanne, it's kind of, I don't know what you made of this section of the paper, but one of the things that we're, we're hearing a lot from firms is that um, there's a lot of consideration of actual and potential and transient. Um, there are pages given over to the, dri- uh, the drivers or the causes of vulnerability. But there are only a few places scattered throughout the paper where we actually address the fundamental question as like vulnerable to what? Mm. I mean, what, what were you picking up from the paper in regards to that? Um, from my perspective, I'm not necessarily sure that it is helpful just to group everybody into what the vulnerability is. Um, and, you know, certainly f- when reading the guidance, I would have liked a lot more focus on the needs and what harm the customer could then fall into um, because of the treatment. And, you know, if you group customers, so you might have Mr. A and Mr. B have the same cancer diagnosis, um, the same sort of circumstances, but Mr. A has a completely different need and outcome from Mr. B just because of the way that, uh, you know, their individual circumstances have led them, um, you know, the outcome that they've then got. So I think it's quite unhelpful just to group people into the vulnerability um sort of potential actual etc and lose the focus on what the need is and what the harm actually is um we're actually i mean we've got a question here that's just come in in response to what you've um, you've all been saying so counterpoint is there anything wrong with seeing every customer as potentially vulnerable because you can still prioritize so we, we go in with that open mind that everyone can be vulnerable, but then we prioritise for our engagement. I think I was going to say, I think it depends on how the FCA are going to view potential vulnerability and how they're going to supervise off the back of it. So in the conversations that Tim and I had, they, they said they don't see everyone as 
potentially vulnerable. They don't want us to stick potentially vulnerable customers in a separate box. But then that means that they need to provide further clarity on what they actually mean in practice so that firms can make sure that they are identifying the potential vulnerabilities either through the product life cycle or through their target market mm. um, or their customer segments. And then, as, you, as Tim said, having the kind of decision points and being able to evidence those. I guess the thing is you start with the whole base, you look at what your operating model is and you, as Tim has said, you need to look at the areas or the customer segments that could be most at risk right. and then take a risk-based approach. I mean, when we've been looking at it, we were really, I really like, I, I call it kind of a Woolard's rose after Christopher Woolard, the little <laughs> tulip diagram, the kind of the flower thing with the drivers. Yeah. I really like that because it seems to be unbreakable. I mean, you could, uh, it gives the four drivers of, um, of, of, of vulnerability. Um, you could argue maybe that firms and markets are in there as well. They seem to be left out. But the one thing that seemed to be missing was a, a framework of common harms because um, there's lots of um, a guidance uh, and advice in the piece saying think about individual customers, uh, it's like groups of customers. However, we can experience a range of common harms. It's that vulnerable to what question that seems to perhaps be kind of missing missing at the moment. And talking of questions, it's um, please do keep uh, your questions coming in using the, uh, you can click on the orange arrow and put your questions to our panel there and we'll pick up some more of those. Let's, um, let's talk a bit more um, about outcomes outcomes figure right at the start of the document it says the aims one of the key aims of the document is to ensure that the outcomes experienced by vulnerable consumers are at least as good as those of other consumers so Suzanne we're going to have to turn to you here as head of customer outcomes can, can you first explain what, what what an outcome is in relation to kind of vulnerability and secondly what do you think the FCA want to see happening here um for me, it's just looking at the individual circumstances of the customer um, and, you know, seeing how that customer has been, you know, making sure that um, the product or service that they have uh, taken out, they are then having a fair outcome for that customer. Um, and what might be a fair outcome for one customer might be a different outcome to another. The difficulty is it can be quite subjective um, to determine what we believe a fair outcome is. Um, and that, again, leads us to a position of, how difficult would it be for the FCA to then determine uh, sort of a baseline of what a fair outcome can be um, when we know, uh, you know, individual circumstances make it so uh, different from, from one customer to another. Um, I think the FCA are really trying to drive, you know, equality, um, the fair treatment of customers. Frictionless is a, is a word that really springs to mind um, for myself. You know, the customers should not be in a position because of our uh, policies, processes, that we then m compound the issues further. Um, I was watching Grand Designs last night and th at the end there was a, a preview of next week and it was a gentleman in a wheelchair and he said, you know, the only reason why I am disabled is because my environment makes me disabled. Um, and I kind of think of that's the way that firms can then lead to harm um, and a poor outcome for that customer if we haven't adapted um, and changed the way that we are then looking at customer base, customer target market processes, procedures, we will then compound that issue further and make it worse for those customers leading to poor outcomes. So Tim, we, we've, yep. we've been asked to speak up a bit more as well uh, by our listeners on, on the line. Um, would, would it be right to think that outcomes are only effective if they can be measured then? You know, what can be counted counts. And if so, 
are firms really in a position in terms of data to kind of measure these outcomes, given what we collect on vulnerability at the moment? Yeah, so we go with the adage, what gets measured gets done, right? Um, and I think there's probably not a single organisation that's either listening around this table who doesn't see a whole suite of metrics that drives <laughs> a, a business forward. And therefore, I think it's an important point to say, like, we are going to have to have a way of measuring this to know that we're making progress and positive progress. Um, I think our firm's in a position to do so. I think we have more work to do in this space, but some of that work comes out of your first definition of what outcomes are you after. Um, I do have a concern, though, which is around the issue of surrogation. So this is where organisations confuse what they are measuring with the metric. A good example of this is probably you see a lot of organisations with a customer service focus, and their customer service focus then turns into actually a goal which is improve a score. Right? You know, um, I uh, recently went to go and buy a car, and when I bought the car and sat down with the guy at the end, he put a piece of paper in front of me and he said, oh, um, with the experience you've got today, what would you score me? And I was like, score you? Sorry. And he said, uh, here's the score, and in a very bold numbers was this score of nine and ten and he said just to be clear my bonus is uh, based on uh, this score <laughs> yeah. if it's not a nine or ten would you let me know because you'll get a survey from uh, head office and uh, if it's not that score I'd like to know what I could do to influence it right that's a great example of surrogation which is suddenly it's around how do I maximize this score because there's something in it for me it's not about delivering great customer service mm -hmm. and so I think as we lean into it that concept of surrogation should be front and center for us all which is how do we get appropriate measures but measures that drive great outcomes that they don't end up just being we're trying to hit a number okay so let's let's think and uh, we'll go to fiona first let's think the fca already have six core consumer outcomes and if you're in it's not sing-along mode it's read-along mode <laughs> today if you're looking at page 26 figure two um if we had to add one consumer outcome specifically about vulnerability so you can't say we deal with this under treating customers fairly. That's not allowed. Yeah. One additional outcome to this list, making it seven in total. What would that outcome be? What would be the vulnerable customer kind of outcome? Fiona, we're going so with So I'm not going to give you the answer that you want. <laughs> so I wouldn't add a vulnerability requirement because I think we should be treating all customers well. And so I don't think it's helpful to carve out the vulnerability because that puts them in a separate box. What I do think, though, is that the, the common outcomes that are in the FCA principles in the handbook are already supported by the Vulnerability Task Force principles. And that relates more to not the what we've done, but more about how we make customers feel. So it talks about, you know, providing a sensitive, flexible response, having access to specialist help um, and being empathetic and that sort of one-stop notice piece and I think those are things that we shouldn't lose sight of I think they're really valuable and it's not the what you do but it's it's back to you know people say about bosses and things don't they it's not about what happens but how that boss made me feel and it's the same with customers so I think that's something that we I wouldn't want it to be an outcome in its sense, in the terms of written down in a rule book, but the vulnerability task force principles are there and I think we should be making sure that we're meeting those through all of our customer journeys and if we're not, we should be fixing it. Okay, so Tim, can I push you? I'll mm -hmm. push you a bit further than Fiona. Go it's on. kind of Going first is always hard, Fiona. It's kind of, So what would that consumer, that vulnerable consumer outcome be if we had to have just one added to the list of six core oh, outcomes? We have one. Um, so the one that I would add is ensure vulnerable customers are included in the six principles above. 
Wow. It's kind of <laughs> like, like that Isaac Asimov rule about <laughs> robots, isn't it? It's kind of a, okay, yeah, yeah. But there's a point, I think that's a natural extension of actually what Fiona was saying, which is actually how do we ensure that people don't just keep seeing this as something new, additional to be added? How do we keep emphasizing? How do we include it in the existing work we've got? And I think that actually just adding that fact would be a reminder of don't forget about but there already should be included yeah we've got a question um uh, from the audience um, saying how can we measure outcomes when it's just so subjective that goes a little bit back to kind of your, your point earlier but they are they are subjective i mean it doesn't stop us using uh what is it mps scores um but they are subject how do, how do we get around this particularly when in a vulnerable situation uh, people's circumstances and maybe expectations uh, mm -hmm. are, are very very different for me, I always do the family test. Um, if you would not be comfortable with the outcome that that customer has had, um, if it was a family member, it's the wrong outcome. Um, and I think it's just simply going back to that common sense approach. Yes, it's subjective, but linking it back to would you be happy with that treatment? Would you be happy if your mother, your grandmother, your grandfather had that treatment for that firm? If the answer is no, it's a poor outcome irrespective of whether they're a vulnerable customer or not. Mm. I think the other way that you can do it as well is through customer satisfaction. Mm. So I'm not talking about having an NPS score for vulnerable customers. Um, I saw some research um, undertaken by, it was the Missing Out Report, and it looked at customer satisfaction, disability, um, disabled people's customer satisfaction across a number of sectors and also um, via channels. So the financial services sector actually came out quite well, but if you looked at the difference in performance across channels, then there was definitely some areas that we should be looking at and improving. So I, I think... I, I like the kind of would you sell it to your granny test, as I would have said it in RBS, but also that satisfaction lens, I think, comes back to the how do they feel about how we've treated them. Mm. Okay. So we, we skipped into a potential natural vulnerability, uh, then went straight into outcomes, and we didn't get Tim's pick of what caught his eye within the paper. So oh, okay. what, what caught your eye, Tim? Um, so... Uh, what caught my eye mainly was I was really pleased to see that the paper was actually centering itself slightly away from where I think we've spent a lot of time and energy focused on rightly, which was very much about frontline agent, individual um, identification, disclosure, treatment. And so I think there's been a, a lot of thought and direction and training in that space. The thing which I was really pleased about was that they started to present the full life cycle view. So there was a lot more conversation about, yes, that's important, but what are you doing on the front end to truly understand the vulnerable profile of your customer base? And then what are you doing with that knowledge to then think about the design of your products and services so that when then they interact with your agents, which we've already discussed, they get the right level of service. And then how do you have monitoring and control at the end? And I think the monitoring control is great because what that also says is we recognize that this isn't once and done. It's not answers to be implemented. It is further work for organizations to explore and understand how they are improving or not, and then correct for that. And so I like that. 
the reason why I liked it um, was actually because at the beginning of this year, we set apart um, a piece of work to try and address the full life cycle view. And so actually for me personally, it was really great to see that that was the direction because it kind of paid off on a whole project of work that we're doing to look at how do we start to think about the day-to-day -day, day -day decisions that get made that could influence vulnerable customers across the organization. How do we ensure that all of those myriad of people are cognizant of what vulnerability means, how it could be affected. And so there's a huge amount under our kind of design principles work which is starting to push on that that's really great to see yeah and it's it's adding things like a disability speed bump as they would have called it in rbs into your product design business case or it's adding um into any board paper what is the outcome of you know what is the impact of this into the vulnerable customer base so at the moment we've got to consciously think about these things we should get to a point where it becomes fully inclusive design and it's second nature to think about these things mm -hmm. and people don't need those prompts in the processes to have to do it, mm -hmm. but we're not there yet. So we do need to put pinch or points or road junctions, speed bumps, whatever you want to call it, into processes to make people stop and think and then make the right decisions. Okay, so it's inserting it and in, integrating it and getting on people's agendas and I think it, this is a really interesting point because it, there, was a, there was an element of this in the 2015 paper, um, but it really comes out very strongly within this, this piece around um, anticipation and prevention. So in the, in the, uh, previously we thought about what do we do when someone discloses? What steps do we take? How do we get the relevant information? This one seems to be saying, and you're both echoing this, um, actually we go beyond, we go back we go to actually the product design cycle. Mm. Uh, we think about that initial engagement, the signals that we send out as a company. I, I did notice that sales didn't feature very much. I'm using sales in the broad term for kind of lending. It didn't, wasn't mentioned that much in there. It jumped into communications and marketing. And you could argue marketing is sales, but I was thinking it was true. But kind of, uh, Suzanne, what, what, do you think it's kind of the, realistic for smaller firms to build in vulnerability to the design circle uh, cycle? Um. It, well, it should be realistic for for any size organisation to build it in. Um, it should just be part and parcel of what you're doing. Um, it shouldn't be a bolt on. It shouldn't be a right. We need to go away and invest so much in uh, you know funds into doing all of this research, etc. It should just be BAU activity. What smaller firms will not have is the insight of that, um, you know, data from larger institutions thinking of current account providers where you are able to track their spending patterns um, and, you know, get some really valuable insight from that information. Um, and I think it would be great to see where we have more valuable insight from larger firms to have that shared best practice um, across firms, across organisations, across different sectors, um, because we're all trying to get to the end goal. It doesn't seem, you know, it's not going to be commercially um, damaging to share that information from one sector or another, you know, while giving secrets away about how we're going to get um, our latest products flying off the shelf. It's about how we're treating those customers and how we can get that insight and research and for me that should just be something that we are so able to to, to easily share from one firm for to another to help each other out mm. so kind of um working for a, a large provider uh, uh, tim and also fiona representing a, a range of firms at kind of uk finance in size 
I mean, sometimes we, we encounter in the work we do at the Money Advice Trust firms, we engage market research companies undertake very detailed pieces of work, and that research around vulnerability never sees the light of day. We've seen some exceptions. Barclays, a little while ago, published some excellent research about public perceptions of using data to identify and start conversations around vulnerability. But what can we do to encourage this transparency, going beyond just showing a case study, but actually putting it out there, a bit like Monzo have led for many years, actually kind of unpacking their kind of features and saying what they're doing around vulnerability. So Tim first and then Fiona. Yeah, so uh, question, how do we encourage more people to share? And uh, I think uh, a good example is actually um, in a separate context is fraud. So if you look at what the industry does from a fraud perspective, they recognize there is common benefit in ensuring that we tackle fraud and that fraudsters don't perpetrate um, and therefore, there is a great level of industry sharing around you know, potential fraud or concerns, right? I think we should use that as a kind of blueprint for you know, vulnerable customers can have some really dire you know, consequences and needs. And therefore, what as an industry can we do? So I'd hope, firstly, that we kind of share that view of like what we do with fraud to ensure protection we can think about with vulnerability. Um, for me, I wonder how much of it is because what we need is it, you're kind of waiting for a bit more of a seminal moment. So you've got lots of you know individual solutions. You know, I think you talked about Monza. I think you know they've been really public about what they have done for gambling addiction, and that's one aspect with one vulnerability. You know, we capture 68 different conditions in our vulnerable database, right? You know, like many people, we started in the condition logging. Oh, you said that, right? I'll log you as, you know, terminal cancer or bereavement or whatever that be. We recognize 68 conditions. Well, you can't manage all of that. And so we undertook, you know, uh, quite a comprehensive piece of work, which actually boiled those down to 10 common behavioral traits because actually the condition didn't matter. It was how does that present itself? And so what we started to see was common traits in terms of short-term memory loss, you know, low concentration, elements like self-deception, where people are believing something to be true even about themselves, even though it is not, mm. right? And what we saw was actually there's a lot of commonality. And so we're starting some work to then say, well, actually, instead of worrying about 68 conditions, how do we start to think about 10 common behavioral traits? And how do we address those traits in our product and service design? Now, for us... I think you know we're partway through that journey. So I wonder how much of it is organizations are waiting until they've got something to share and they need a platform in which to share it. And I think if we can create those two things, then I believe that the industry can come together and do something for the greater good. And we, we're lucky enough to have had you at the Vulnerability Academy yep. talking exactly about how you've gone from that 68 to 10 yep. and everyone there would benefit from seeing those 10. Do you think there's a the role, um, Tim and, and Fiona, on actually just taking, taking the step and publishing this? So kind of actually making it available to other firms so they can learn from this? Because I'm thinking smaller firms don't have the resources necessarily or perhaps that range of data which to draw upon to, to actually reach these conclusions. So, Tim, just very quickly, and then on to Fiona yeah. for a, a, bit, a bit of a longer answer. Yeah, so uh, they are discussions we're having internally, right? You know, what do we want to do? How do we elevate it? How can we help people with it um i think um that is an entire conversation that we are having at this point i think it's back to the original one which is what is the appropriate point right we want to get to a place where we feel comfortable that sharing that will help and benefit for the greater good um i think we're part way through that journey i think as we start to come to you know the end of that and we start piloting some stuff i think that would be a great point for us to take a lead role to share 
so from my perspective, I think there's a couple of things. So first of all, there is no common definition of vulnerability. So the CMA has a different definition to the FCA. So as different regulators uh, that we face off to, we have to have something that fits for all of those. So that's the first thing. Secondly, different firms record vulnerability and think of it in different ways. So um, Tim's just talked about the 68 and the 10. RBS had 16 different um, vulnerability categories um, that they put everything through the lens of. So there's differences in approach and there's differences in approach as to how those are captured in the back, back office systems that then drive staff awareness. So, um, you know, some people will will record actual or potential vulnerabilities. Some people will record the actual condition. Others will record their need or a combination of that. And now we've got this potential bit, which is the kind of, you know, back to fraud. You know, if somebody's come become a victim or you see behaviour going through their account, strange transaction, they could be at high risk. So are you putting a flag on? You then get into the whole debate around customers wanting us to record this stuff and culturally they're not there yet so i was on the extra cost commission which is referenced in the report and i had two uh, wheelchair bound journalists say to me big business i was the only corporate in the room big business needs to do more to um service the needs of its cust vulnerable customers and i said i absolutely agree with you but the challenge is i've got seventy thousand staff that all need to want and be able to identify your needs so that they can service you really well how do i get that well i need the data and their initial response was i don't want that recorded and i said well there is the secular problem if i can't record it then they won't know particularly if they're digital or over the phone that you've got a challenge and then not know necessarily how to meet it so i think there's a cultural piece of us creating um, a change in customers' behaviour, and we're only going to do that by being approachable and creating trust. And then the second bit is we have to invite that conversation. So we need to have lots of open questions that staff feel comfortable with asking at appropriate points in appropriate journeys. And that then hopefully would get to a better data set. Mm. Lots of questions coming in. And one question that's popped up, which relates just to that, just a very brief answer perhaps from um, Suzanne and then Tim, is um, how do we get um, people to tell us about uh, vulnerability, particularly at the application stage? I want my uh, Capital One credit card or my Newcastle Building Society account. Surely very nice. Um, but am I going to tell you about my vulnerability? What, what can we do to get people to share with us, tell us these things? For me, it's about telling the story and getting it out there as to how we will help you um, and what we will utilise that data for to support your needs. Um, I think there is a huge trust void across not just financial services, um, you know, utilities, etc., that there's the concern of I'm going to tell you this and then you are then not going to lend me certain funds or um, you know, you're going to treat me completely differently to to my neighbour next door. Um, so for me, it's absolutely being clear the purposes for which we are asking that information um, and how we are going to help you and what we are going to do by you disclosing that information to us. 
Okay, so sending those signals out, giving that explanation. Tim, very briefly. Yeah, so quickly, I think what we can do is, uh, first of all, you have to provide a place for that. And I don't necessarily know whether it's acquisitions, because I agree with uh, what you're talking about. It's actually probably early life. So part of the joining journey in our terms should include uh, a part to allow people. I don't think you can make people, right? You can't tell people, but you've got to allow people the place where they can share something with you. Absolutely agree with you. You've got to tell them why they should share it and what you will do with it and that what has to be beneficial to their needs if you can do that i think that's a great first step mm. and we're from our experience there kind of um, it's also the the when we even the firms we work with they've considered doing it before giving the product mm. but actually it's after the product has been mm. given to the person i'm going to cut you off the own fiona only because i want to do the closes there are lots of things coming in at the moment about um, including vulnerabilities a license condition similar to energy should the fca also not do this people talking about sharing things that go beyond uh, case studies as good as case studies are but wider data these are things for another uh, another occasion somebody says you keep mentioning the academy <laughs> why do you keep going on about this academy what is it um, at the end we'll we'll explain that it's the vulnerability academy and we'll we'll, we'll take a, a minute or so just to explain it so i'm going to go on to the closers now we're running out of time uh, sadly. Um, so Tim, I'm going to start with um, you. The FCA are not only taking uh, written um, feedback and consultation, but they're running a cost-benefit analysis. And they're looking, if I've got this right, at the actions that firms are currently taking around vulnerability and attaching a cost to it, economic, and also looking at the benefit. It raises lots of questions about whose costs, whose benefits. Mm -hmm. um, what actions do you think this analysis should look at? And would it, where would it be most useful to know the return on investment on certain actions? So like, I think it's an interesting to therefore just assume that good vulnerability practices must be a cost, right? You've already set the tone, which is, by the way, we're going to do this and it's going to cost industry. Um, I think it's absolutely right that there is a place where if there are firms who are feeling that there is an unnecessary burden to them, that therefore they've got a place to include that. But when I read the kind of cost benefit analysis and I kind of thought about it, it reminded me of a quote actually from uh, the current CEO of Jaguar, which is uh, Ralph Speth. He said, um, if you think good design is expensive, you should look at the cost of bad design. And I've seen that rewritten, which is if you think the cost of compliance is expensive, you should look at the cost of non-compliance. Mm -hmm. And I think the cost-benefit analysis, if we're not careful, puts an unnecessary weighting on, it looks like it costs. What it doesn't always help us to do is, but what is the alternative mm -hmm. and is that more costly? And I think sometimes cost can also be broader than just financial. Okay, Suzanne and Fiona, 30 seconds each. If you were to add or remove one thing from the guidance, what would it be? For me, I think it's too light on support for colleagues. Um, if you've got frontline staff dealing um, you know, with difficult conversations with our customers on a daily basis, um, it can affect their own mental health. And I think whilst it does touch on it slightly, um, I think it should really be more explicit as to what firms should be doing to support those frontline colleagues. Excellent. Fiona? I think we need greater um, clarity between the FCA and the ICO on data. So what can be recorded, when, the ethics of it, when it can be used. So I know discussions are, are ongoing and that there is reference to it in the, uh, in the guidance document, but um, it's giving us a flavour of what it might be rather than a definitive view on what it is. Yeah, very timely. The Money of Isolation Group are looking for funding for their vulnerability and uh, 
GDPR guidance. So that's a very helpful kind of point in that direction. We've reached the end, um, sadly. Uh, we've covered 69 pages in just under uh, 59 minutes. Uh, probably use the word vulnerability more often than the FCA. They use it 116 <laughs> times in the paper, if you're interested in such things. And perhaps only scratch the surface of how firms should respond, not only to the consultation on paper, also to the practical needs of those people living with vulnerability right now. This will be an issue that we'll return to discuss. Um, but I'd just like to kind of uh, thank Fiona Turner, Suzanne Wood and Tim Hawley for their openness and expertise. Thank you ever so much. If you want to know more about the Vulnerability uh, Academy, which is a series of five workshops match closely to the, uh, the consultation guidance and wider regulation from the FCA, as well as wider legal frameworks. Just click on here. Um, if you just wanted to attend the webinar and want to be left alone, feel free to click that as well. Thanks ever so much. Uh, we look forward to seeing some of you at the Vulnerability Academy's keynote speakers or participants. But once again, thanks for your time and look forward to seeing you again soon. That was a Vulnerability Academy podcast. Brought to you by UK Finance and the Money Advice Trust. For more information, visit ukfinance.org.uk and moneyadvicetrust.org slash vulnerability.